Up next on episode 52 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the launch of ServerFault, how you determine if your code is smelly or just aromatic, how programmers learn by doing, and how good ideas are too crazy to copy until it's too late. From IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. We thought the worst-case scenario was that we would literally branch the code. Sure. So then we would have two things to migrate bug fixes to all the time. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'll and I know you guys use Mercurial, right? Yeah, and that would make it a little easier, but, I mean, it it shouldn't really be necessary to branch the code. No. No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be. But one thing we found was that we did do a branch when we did the big database migration because that was such a big change. We had to, you know, have bug fixes go on the main line while we were working on the uh, the database uh, uh, change. Right. Because all the fields changed and all the stuff. We did a bunch of refactoring on the database. Yep. And when we found merging that in was yeah. excruciating. Yep. It was so painful. That and is we why. Actually updated. Yep. Yeah. We well we updated to the latest version of Subversion, which is one point six, I think, mm-hmm. and it has quote-unquote better support for merging and it was still just brutal i mean we missed so many things there were at least i want to say five to ten things that we missed in the merge somehow. so this is why everybody is abandoning those version control systems that are of the subversion generation and they're moving to mercurial and git and to a lesser extent uh the other uh distributed systems because yeah, I mean, there was there's something, there's something that took me a while to understand about Mercurial. But fundamentally, Mercurial is, you have to, Mercurial thinks of the world as a list of changes. And Subversion thinks of the world as a list of different versions of all your files. And so for Subversion to figure out where you are on a branch and do the merge, all it can do really is do a diff and say, well, I don't know what happened, but the following thing, it's, it's, we're different from you guys in the following ways. Whereas Mercurial has this sort of added info of all the steps that were taken and all the transformations that were done. Um, so it just does a, it just basically has more information to use in the merge and making the merge successful. Yeah, I think that's the key phrase is that it feels like Subversion does so little to make your merge successful that the success <laughs> of the merge relies entirely on you doing every stinking little thing correctly. Mm-hmm. And if you miss anything, then you get a bad merge. And and the thing that sucks is you don't figure out until like a week later that this bug fix that you put in is right. not in the code base. Yeah, because it might You're compile. Like, but yeah. Yep. Pissed me off. Uh, every time I would run into it, I would just, I would just get very, very angry because uh, I felt like my tooling had failed me. Well, I would and, highly recommend just switching to Mercurial. Um, also, because you guys are all, you are actually a distributed team, right? Like the, 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 the three of you are all in different places. And... Um, we're going to want to have the hosted version that, that Fog Creek is doing, and it would be really good even if we have to fork the code for us both to be using Mercurial because then we could still throw each other bug fixes even if we forked 
you know, years later, we can be throwing each other bug fixes. Are you, like, announcing that now on the podcast? I guess I might as well. What the heck? I'm, we, we have no secrets. Yeah. We haven't even hired somebody to develop this thing yet. Hey, if you are a Stack Overflow listener and you're a really good developer and you're pretty good, especially, I mean, we'll, we'll hire you even if you don't necessarily know ASP.NET and ASP.NET MVC, but if you do, that's a big help. And uh, uh, and you want to work on Stack Overflow, then uh, we got an opening here at Fog Creek, so email your resume to jobs at fogcreek.com. But you have to be local, right? I mean, no, that's required. we'll hire. Uh, nope, you just have to be. Really? Uh, yeah, you just have to have permanent right to work in the United States. So that means wow. you either uh, have already have a permanent residency, like a green card, or U.S. Uh, or Canadian citizen, uh, a U.S. citizen or a Canadian or Mexican citizen with a bachelor's in engineering. I don't know. It's complicated. Basically, uh, no H one Bs because we just you just can't get them anymore. Why don't you? Okay. Well, that's cool. That's all. That's awesome that you're opening it up to the the, the whole United States. Yeah, that we really we always so we much. always do. About half the people we hire, we wind up moving to New York. More and more, actually. I can't even think of any local New Yorkers that we've hired. Okay, cool. So there's a relocation sort of thing. That sure. Eventually, Mike. Yeah, you'd get the whole package: the Fog Creek stock, the relocation package, the uh, free uh, lunches, the. Um, uh huh. Anyway. Cool. Well, that's exciting because I, I tell you, my mailbox, I don't want to say overflowing, but every few days I get an email from somebody that wants, you know, would like to use the Stack Overflow engine in some way. Yep. And I just don't really have a good answer for them. So this is exciting for me because now I have at least a, a reasonable answer for them, which is that we're working on a hosted version of it that's going to be run on the Fog Creek infrastructure. Some hypothetical person that we really want to hire who hopefully will hear this podcast. Send me a resume. Yeah. Yes. You know, the funny thing about that is we're, we're very excited about it, as I mentioned, because we think it fills a real need and, you know, it, it's a service that you guys already do very well. So I think it's a good fit on every possible level. Mm-hmm. But the thing that makes us all pause on the team is like other people are going to look at our code and we're like, ooh, is our code really good enough for another de- developer to come in and not, you know, tear their hair out? I mean, we're probably being oversensitive, but, yeah. you know, I think that's the reaction I have with all my code is like you feel like you're. I don't know. Is it good enough for other people to work on it sure. yet? Maybe you should spend a month like refactoring it first. Well, <laughs> I think I think everybody feels that way, and that is actually true. That there is there's kind of two levels of code. There's like the level of code where it runs and it's debugged, and you're kind of happy with it, and you can continue to work on it if you need to. Let's say that there's three levels. That's the middle level. The bad level is you know it's bad. It's a pain to work on. Anytime you want to change something, you know you're going to be pulling out your own hair. And then the top level is like you could publish this in a book because after you got it working, you went over it and refactored it 17 times and cleaned it up and did all kinds of all that extra work that didn't get you any extra functionality, but did make it kind of code that anybody could dive into. So maybe you've renamed things, you've cleaned things up, you've reorganized things several times, you've gone through the code trying to make it like literary code where, you know, the the comments just smoothly, seamlessly flow with the code so you can figure out what's going on. Our challenge too is that we started in one of the the betas of ASP.NET MVC, and we sort of learned, not that MVC is super complicated, mm-hmm. but we learned MVC as we were going. That always, and you know, that, that happens so often. And then there's points in the code where we did things that I don't think really, they're not wrong and they're not horrible. <laughs> I don't think anything in our code would make you question our core competency as software developers. I will say that. Because, sure. <laughs> you know, there's always that daily WTF code where you're like, these people shouldn't even be near a computer much less writing code. Right. I don't think we're at that level. But there's definitely parts where we did things that aren't in the spirit of MVC because we didn't really understand or 
honestly, some of the pieces of MVC like weren't there when we started. You know, all we had was the the sort of the, the root pieces yeah. of it, and they sort of built up pieces around it to do, for example, validation. Like there was no real valid form validation framework, so you had to sort of roll your own. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what we did. We rolled our own validation, and if you were starting out now, you there's no way you would do that. But we have all this existing code that we have to support. You know, so there's and, no and reason the to change was, to their their, their well, the, new modern official form validation. Well, I'm a big fan of refactoring, believe me. And when I started, I told Jared, one of the first things I told him was, look, we're going to rewrite this app three times, just top to bottom. That's just the way software works. You mean you're going to so start a, from scratch? Well, not literally. I was being a little dramatic for a okay, fact. My point is that you want to refactor all the time. That's just part of having a healthy code base. Is you go in and you just tear things up that aren't good and make them good, right? right? Even if you don't. I mean, it's it's a question of balancing resources. You don't do it all the time, but you periodically yeah, you can take tear out. You can, t- you can take a piece and tear it out, or you can take a piece and just try to clean it up. Exactly. You yeah. don't just say, "Okay, I'm going to fix this." I'm just, it's kind of like working with legacy code. You're like, "Oh, I'm going to touch this as little as possible just to get it to do this one thing that I want." And then I'm not going to. I don't want to break it. Sure. Um, I don't want to have that attitude. That that sort of walking on eggshells attitude towards code because I feel like that's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, you have a legacy code base, and you're not really alive as a project in my opinion uh so whenever we do stuff i encourage the guys to, and they do it all the time to go in and just rewrite things you know little things that are not the way they should be to make them more you know elegant or just not melt your brain when you look at them mm-hmm. so i'm for that but on the other hand it is true and we do this all the time we we regress like well every time you touch code every time you change something the odds of you breaking stuff are you know really high so that is and, what and uh, the uh, trendy the trendy boys would call a code smell. Yes, 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 yes. And then, of course, you could. That's what TDD is all about, right? Theoretically, it's like getting a whole set of unit tests in place. So every time you change something, you know you're you're protected. You know that nothing's right. going to break. And I thought right. the theory. I mean, it sounds like the theory behind some of those solid principles, which we like to butcher on our show, had something to do with <laughs> making sure that your code is in a way in, in a place where every time you change something, you don't break all kinds of other unrelated things. Because if you follow these principles, presumably every time you want to change something, there's, you know, one elegant file that you just have to find it and go in there and change a zero to a one and everything has been thought out for you already. And so it magically happens without any bugs. Right. And before people, and, and, and true, we could, we do have some unit tests. We could have more unit tests, but I find too that some of the, some of the regressions you get, I don't know how in the world you would have a unit test that would catch them. Like, the other day, I went in and I normalized one of our CSS classes that had to do with the OpenID field, the way it displays, and made it the same across. We were using different things in different places, which didn't make sense, so I normalized it. Mm-hmm. This actually broke some of the JavaScript on the client in a very minor way, nothing horrible. But the login page JavaScript does some sort of stuff to help you figure out you know, what OpenID provider you're using. Oh, I noticed that. I was broken. having trouble logging in. Yeah, well, we did we did some login refactoring and, and broke a few things. Nothing serious, but minor, annoying things. Well, this was one in. of them. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Wait, tell me, Jeff, real quick, because maybe this is another bug that I need to file. Like, I was clicking on a little my open ID thing, and then I was typing my name, and I was clicking in some other place, and it was just like failing to make it look like I was logged in. But if I had actually like it was telling me, no, that's you're wrong. You cannot log in. But actually, if I went back to the site, then I was logged in. Is that that bug? Uh, no, it's okay. related. It's not exactly that one, but yeah, that's the same rough area of the code. We had to do. We had a bunch of like security things that happened there that we had to make some pretty serious changes. Okay. Uh, which a different topic, but this this 
JavaScript thing I'm talking about. So changing this the CSS class broke the JavaScript. How would you write a unit test that would verify that the JavaScript is actually displaying things on the screen correctly? You um, know, or like the jQuery, like the voting that we do. Yeah, these like things are kind of hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how? I don't know. It just seems unrealistic. I don't even know how to begin well, writing a unit test to verify that JavaScript is working in the browser. The trouble is, what you would have to do is it would have to be some other piece of, not necessarily JavaScript, but something that's running kind of at the above the browser, sort of, and poking around in the browser to see what things are where. It would have to have access to the DOM. I mean, you couldn't. You there. There are only two possible ways of doing it, right? One is looking at the browser and getting a, a pointer to the the document object model in the browser and interrogating it to make sure things are where you believe they should now be. Although that doesn't give you enough information as to whether they're actually visible on sc- screen or whether they've scrolled out. I mean, there are a lot of bugs that can occur where the DOM appears to your test's mind, to your test's eye, the DOM appears to be completely correct, right? Right. And yet, like, it, it sure looks right. And then suddenly you realize, oh, and, but this style is conflicting with that other thing and causing it to become invisible because it's picking up this style from that other place that inherited from then. I forgot all about that inheritance. And so the thing is just completely invisible. And yet there it is in the DOM. And so the, the, the tests are passing, but the, the browser is displaying the wrong thing. And the only other option is to go nuclear, which is let's just take a screenshot using Camtasia or something, or, or uh, you know, like literally take a bitmap of what's happening on the screen and compare it to some previous known good bitmap and make sure that it's okay. And then one day you, tra- you change your screen resolution or you change the size of the browser or you change uh, the, the, the you, you, you tweak your clear type settings so every pixel is just a little bit different and you get completely different results. So that's, that's one of the things that I'm constantly having people tell me about test-driven development is that there's this, if you're testing a graphical user interface, which includes a web user interface, you can do it at a subcutaneous level, like right beneath the skin, which is looking at the DOM, or you can do it at the skin level, which is the pixels, and both of them have serious, serious drawbacks. Right. Well, one thing that comes up in this discussion is that TDD supposedly is is re- it, it's one of the worst possible names. It's not really about testing. Yeah, testing yeah, is kind of like a side effect. Okay, fine. This it's is really design. about design. Yes, thank you. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny, though, because if you look at any test-driven development sort of blog, it's like, oh, getting started with test-driven de- development. What is the first thing you do? You yeah, write a test. Write a test. <laughs> and, you know, the <laughs> but most it's important... not about testing. No, no, it's about design. Yeah. It's like... Uh, and, l- and let me tell you, there is a solution to this problem. There is an excellent solution to this problem of how to test these things so they don't break again. You hire a person who has the title of tester and doesn't mind a certain amount of monotony, and they look at your application, and they run through a whole bunch of things, and they maintain a manual list that they keep in a word processor or some kind of outlining program that lists all the things that they want to test every time you have a new drop. And you tell them, I've been working on the logon code. Go look at the logon test and rerun those. And they sit there patiently, and they type them, and they see what happens. And if it's okay, they tell you it's okay. And if it's not okay, they tell you it's not okay. And then you don't have these bugs. But um, this bothers programmers because it's not like super-duper mega ultra-automatic. It's kind of manual. Yeah. Well, Slutty. that's sort of the fantasies with programmers is that everything mm-hmm. can be programmed away. <laughs> right. And right. sometimes the human solutions are even better. In fact, you know, that's one of the interesting things about really Stack Overflow is like a human search engine, isn't it? I mean, it's essentially deriving answers, not from mm-hmm. a Google query. I mean, eventually we feed Google or whoever, whatever web search engine you're using, uh, but in terms of real-time answers, that's Twitter. That's why everybody loves Twitter now is they've sort of realized that, oh, I can ask a question and get answers like instantly, you know, really good answers from yeah. 
actual human beings. Isn't you know, it? you sort of crowdsource the answer. And in real time, that's the big catch. It's kind of weird because then and then we try to make that really efficient and make sure that other people with the same question don't have to use another human's time ever again, right, which is the whole purpose of this thing. That's true. The, so the 86% the of, of the people that are coming in through Google rather than the people are coming in by asking questions. Yes, yes, the whole trail of breadcrumbs. That's what makes it sort of a noble act is you're contributing time, but everybody benefits from this time, mm-hmm. you know, in, in some small way. So, so that's what's great about it. But it, it's really the time to answer because I, I just had another really nice Twitter sort of compliment. Somebody said, hey, I posted my question on Stack Overflow and got an answer in 30 seconds. And he was just blown away by that. <laughs> and I, I, that happens at least once a week. I get some really nice email from somebody that's just impressed at the speed of answer. Mm-hmm. So that's really, you know, the, the core feature is, is like, and that's not programmatic, right? That's act, You have other human beings who are really good at what they do that are helping you, you know? Right. So it's not an algorithm. There's not an algorithm giving you the answer. It's actually your fellow programmers. And, and I think Twitter is kind of the same way. And that's sort of the hook that people are realizing that makes it work. It's just you have this really smart community. If you get in the right communities of smart people, you get amazing information out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So That's cool. You know, we were talking earlier. I wanted to mention something that occurred to me. We were uh, we were talking about how uh, you, were, you guys were learning ASP.NET MVC as you went along. Um, yes. And I just can't I, – I can't remember a time when I wasn't building a new application in – an environment that I did not have any experience with, whether it's the programming language or the frameworks. You're, you're, it seems like you're always learning as you go along for some reason. You never really get to build a new application in a framework that you know really well. Um, and I was just trying to figure out why that was. I mean, one of the, one of the most famous things about the Juno code base was that the guy that started writing the code uh, was learning C++ for the first time and Ooh. decided that he needed to write his own string class. And the main reason was that I don't know. It was admittedly a long time ago. STL was not yet standardized. I, I'm sh- pretty sure it existed, but it was not well known. It was way before Boost. Um, and Microsoft had a thing called C-String in the Microsoft Foundation classes, but we needed code that could run on a Unix server and on Windows. So he said, all right, I'm going to make my own string class. And he proceeded to invent a string class that made every single possible mistake you could make in the design of a string class in C++. <laughs> it's funny because there was this book called Effective C++ by Scott uh, Myers. Did you ever read yes. that, that book, Effective C++? Are you kidding me? Oh, sorry. It's a joke. <laughs> anyway, it's... Continue. It's a book that, uh, that basically says, look, here's all the... C++ is like enough rope to hang yourself and then a couple of extra miles of rope and then like a couple of suicide pills that are disguised as M&M's. <laughs> <laughs> disguised as, as, as vitamins, peanut peanut M and M's, and you know, and 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 the occasional electric knife and so forth. And um, uh, there were a couple of books by Scott Myers uh, at the, in, during the heyday of, of C plus plus called Effective C plus plus, and there's one called More Effective C plus plus, and they're great books. And they basically show you, look, you're going to try to write a class, and you're going to do this particular thing for your copy your copy uh, operator so that when you copy these things, you're going to make all these mistakes. And here's why these are mistakes, and here's why these things are going to blow up, and you're not even going to find out until the space shuttle explodes. And so don't do any of these things. And he had, I don't remember how many, but there were probably 50 things in each book that you shouldn't do. And the, 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 the easiest way to learn this would be to take the string class we were using at Juno, which literally made every one of these mistakes. And <laughs> it was fair because he was learning C++ as he was going along, the guy that wrote this code. And uh, um, and these are all the kinds of things that when you read Effective C++, even if you were a pretty good C++ programmer, 
it, this was just eye opening because you're like, oh wow, I never thought that if I did that, that it would have this other bad implication. And um, uh, so it's kind of a dangerous language because if you haven't read those books, you're going to make dangerous classes. Um, well, let's go back in time. Let's so, well, let's consider yeah. consider this guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what could he him. have done to avoid this problem? Oh, like, yeah, how yeah, could completely he innocent, completely innocent. You wouldn't. Well, just... that's what I'm saying. He didn't he didn't know enough to, sure. to even know right. that he was making these mistakes. So in that scenario, how do you? Just have peer review. Well, I don't know what the solution is because it occurred to me that what happens? How often, when you're working as a professional developer, how often do you start a major new project that's going to have a long life expectancy? Like here at Fog Creek, we've launched Fogbugs, which was already legacy code. City Desk, Copilot, which was, you know, a lot of that code came from VNC. So, you know, maybe it has twice happened that somebody has sat down to write a major new piece of code that's going to have a long legacy. And that's in the, the eight years that this company has been around, you know, almost nine years. And uh, it, it just doesn't happen that often in your career that you get to start over. When you get to start over, let's say it happens every three, four years to a programmer that you're actually starting to build a new gigantic thing. Heck, yeah, every year. Um, you, you're going to look around. And you're going to see, okay, what's the best possible framework I can develop this in? because I'm going to be living with this for a long time. And you're going to evaluate what frameworks and what programming languages are available to you and what's the best tool for the job. And that's awesome. And when you make that decision, the chances are it's going to be a different framework than what was the best framework four years ago when you made the last decision, right? It's just it's just reasonable that you'll be looking around and you'll say, right now, if I wanted to build an app from scratch, maybe I'd build it in Python with Django or Ruby with Rails. But five years ago, if I was going to build an app from scratch, that that wouldn't have necessarily been the... The best, the best choice at that time, because uh, these things change. And what that means is that when you're writing that core, crucial, central code that's the beginning of everything, and you're building your app, you're probably a beginner to the tool, to the tools that you're using. Isn't that weird? Does that not always happen? Right. No, it does. I mean, I think that's a great point because you, at the very point at which you want to make good or the best possible architectural decisions, because you're writing some brand new line of code that's going to last like say five or eight years yeah which i think is a very long time in the software industry actually yeah uh you're making probably the wrong architectural decisions possibly with mvc the the architecture is kind of baked in you know you can't really write the string class in mvc uh that's (laughs) true to the extent that a framework makes these decisions for you it may help but you may not even be aware that it's making them so you see a lot of junior python programmers that haven't quite figured out what they call the What's the word? Python-y? Python-esque? Python-y stuff? Pythonic. Pythonic. They haven't found the Pythonic way of doing something. So they'll do things with a loop where they really should be using uh, a list comprehension because they didn't get to that chapter yet or they're just not used to it yet. And you'll see they'll Very write, true. Yeah. And, and so a lot of these, a lot of Python code, and, and you know what happens then? They look at the frameworks. They don't understand them because they're not Pythonic yet. They, haven't, they don't know about Python. And they say, oh, what the heck? I'm going to make my own framework. Why not? I'm a... <laughs> at least I'll understand it if I make my own. And then they start developing their own framework, and their framework is just completely doesn't make any sense half the time because they're not well, really the experts. There's a, there's a double whammy there because you're talking about learning a framework and learning a language. That's probably really risky. Sure. In the, in yeah. the risk factors list is like, you know, for us, we knew .NET really well, everybody on the team, so we didn't have to spend time learning. We knew about Link. We yeah. knew about, you know. Lambdas and stuff that we should be exploring and using, and mm-hmm. how to write good .NET code, we knew mm-hmm. before coming in. But certainly, I could see exactly where it's like. I'm going to learn Ruby, and you go in and write like the worst possible Ruby code, you know. And right. it's in the Rails framework, so it probably works. But yeah, you 
uh, just like there's Pythonic ways of doing things. And then you're, you're kind of living with that. And then new people join the team. They don't know Ruby, so they cut and paste your code and change it all. Like if they need a model for like, how should I, you know, get a record from a database and fill out a form with that record, they'll just copy the way you did it. <sighs> you know what's scary too is, is the element of the blind leading the blind. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where we talked about, you know, having a somewhat experienced developer in whatever you're doing. Right. You know, but they've, the experienced developer, he's moved into management or he's like a VC now. <laughs> you know, he's not, he's bored with development. Yeah, that's depressing that we have you know, some of our best programmers and they move out of programming. It's, it, you know, I think that's a sign of a sane software company is that they have a solid track for software engineers to stay software engineers throughout their career so mm-hmm. that they can teach other developers. If they, I want, mean, if they want to, but yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure, if you want to. I mean, that's predicated on everything, yeah, mm-hmm. certainly. If you, you're dying to be a manager, then <laughs> you love meetings. If you love meetings. Right. <laughs> then, yeah, we have the job, just the job for you. Sigh. You can go into podcasting and blogging at some point in your career <laughs> instead of actually writing code. It's another you could. Then you wouldn't have to actually option. do anything. It's great. Just Do you want to? Um, so what, what else is new? So, so server fault is in beta. We got that. Um, yeah, that is. And if, if anyone still, um, listening to this wants access to the beta, uh, the way to get in is just email me your open ID at team at... Uh, serverfault.com and we'll grant whoever wants access can get access just you need, we need your open ID to add it to the permission list here right does Google work yet the Google open IDs are still not working wasn't working well, as oh, of today right so one thing we discovered that we didn't actually realize was that Google and, and Yahoo also does this um, when we originally signed up for open IDs we used like my open ID and some other services and they all had sort of one naming pattern which is you would sign up for an account and then as long as your name wasn't taken, whatever your name was, minus coding horror, you would uh, get a, a URL that was in the form of name.provider.com. And it was, was your, I thought that was the whole point of OpenID is that what you get with your OpenID is some URL that becomes your OpenID identity. Well, and that's, that's right. the URL and that I you think, should remember, and that's what you have to email to Jeff to get on the beta, and yes. et cetera. Yeah. That, that was always our understanding. What we didn't realize was that the way Google and Yahoo implement this, and I think I understand why they do this, they don't view the open ID as primary. Well, I'll, okay, clarification. Yahoo has a way where you can go me.yahoo.com slash something, but you have to opt into that. The default Yahoo handling is like Google's, which is every time you come into a site and say, hey, I want to log in by open ID, it generates a unique URL for that domain only. So it's like one of these, uh, like one single payment use credit cards where you get like if you're afraid to use your credit card on the internet or something your credit card provider will give you a number that's only going to work once that looks like a credit card but the minute you use it it's burned is it like that, that? well it's not burned i mean it's it's useful forever for on that, that site. site yeah for that site only and are they doing so this because they're completely retarded or are they doing this no because, no because I they think, think the that reason... this is more secure in some way or more protects your privacy in some magical way well, if you think about the theory of what they're doing, they view what's primary to them. What's primary to Yahoo is the fact that you have a Yahoo account. Mm-hmm. What's primary to Google is the fact that you have a Gmail account. And that's understandable. Okay. And Yahoo, to their credit, sort of gives you both ways. You can do it the sort of random URL way, or you can opt into this, hey, I want to be me.yahoo.com, Joe Schmo. Uh, but Google doesn't even give you that option. So when you click log in, it checks to see if you have the cookie if you don't have the cookie, essentially redirects you through your Gmail or your Yahoo Mail. You would sign in there mm-hmm. just like you would to get your mail on Yahoo or Google. So for them, 
the open ID string is not the primary thing that they're promoting. It's the fact that you have an account with them. So that's what the they're trying to teach users that that's what you're logging in as. Not so much. But this, but 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 know, it's it's string. not really working for us for some reason because why? Well, the reason it was it was problematic is we just didn't understand that. We didn't understand that Yahoo and Google were generating unique strings per domain. We view it as a fingerprint for the user, which is fine on the same site. But when you have two sites with different mm-hmm. domain names, mm-hmm. there's now it becomes very awkward for us to identify you on both sites because one of the goals of, of Serverfall was to have a level of interaction with Stack Overflow in that it would pull your account over. You know, you can we can migrate questions back and forth, which is still not done, by the way. So um, the the goal was that if you have a Stack Overflow site, you can log on to Serverfault, and we're going to know who you were at Stack Overflow, and bring over we bring over some of your reputation and some of your preferences. Yes. Exactly, and that's kind of awkward when every Open ID from Google is a unique domain specific string. Well, is there a way <laughs> it to? It's really problematic. Is it problematic, or is it just a showstopper? It's not a showstopper. I mean, there's ways to handle it, but there's nothing really elegant. I mean, you had talked about redirecting. Some people have talked about redirecting through the other site. So we have to have um, basically, we could, we could just decide that all logins happen through Stack Overflow, and then we use the usual cookie, sneaky, redirect thingamajiggy. So if you're on server fault and you need to log on, you click and you'll be logging on, but you'll be doing it at Stack Overflow or something like that. Maybe behind right, the scenes, right. but yeah. Right, right. Um we, we don't have a good solution for this yet, actually. Uh, one thing that we proposed and kind of discarded because it ended up being complicated was that when you logged in, if we saw that you had a Google Open ID on the server fault side, we would prompt you and say, oh, we see that you have a Google Open ID. Would you like to migrate one of your existing accounts? But then I discarded that because I realized everybody who logs in through Google will get that prompt, even mm-hmm. though only a tiny fraction of those people will actually care or want to transfer the Stack Overflow account. Um, so I think what we're going to do is on the user page, once you've actually logged in on server fault mm-hmm. in the future, like a week from now, there's an option on the menu that'll say transfer information from Stack Overflow. And at well, that why point, not just try to do that for everybody just to see if something happens? Well, we, we can't because if we try to do it for everybody, you have to prompt them for information. That's the key. Piece. No, no, you don't. You just have to, what you do is once they're logged on to, the first time they log on to server fault, you do a quick mm-hmm. redirect through Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow looks for the Stack Overflow cookie. If it's there, it passes it back to server fault. So there's just this little click, click, click while your web browser goes through Stack Overflow for a moment, just looking in case, and this is only the first time you log on, just looking in case you happen to actually have some cookie that identifies you as being a part of um, Stack Overflow. And if so, Stack Overflow reveals it to server fault. So you would get that automatically if you had it, and it wouldn't hurt if you didn't. Well, I'm a little leery of making our login process even more complicated because it's one really thing the I've sign learned, up. It's the first login or the sign up process. Well, one thing I've learned actually is that the login stuff, if you get that wrong, it's really bad because it opens up a whole class of exploits that are really pretty serious about around logging in. Let me give you a specific example. So we had a privately disclosed vulnerability um, around basically rogue open ID providers. Mm-hmm. So one of the theories of sort of cross-site scripting protection is that you essentially confirm any major user action. Mm-hmm. You know, don't make it just a one-click, the thing happens, mm-hmm. but make it a click, is this what you really want to do, yes or no? A, an interstitial page that comes in. Because that way, if you trick somebody into clicking on a link and they're logged in, they can they hold the cookie, mm-hmm. and it's a no-touch action, 
you've just caused the user to take that action, right? And one way this could happen for us that we didn't think about until a week ago was that adding an o- a new OpenID provider to your account was a one-click, no-touch operation. Mm-hmm. This means if I could trick you into clicking on a link and I had a rogue OpenID provider that mm-hmm. I ran, I have now associated with your account my OpenID provider. Okay, that's that means bad. I basically own your account. If you can trick someone right? to click on a link. Yeah. Yeah, and that's all it would take because it's an unconfirmed action. Right. So we actually added a whole set of um, confirmations around OpenID, such as adding a new OpenID to your account, mm-hmm. logging in as a different user, um, uh, essentially creating a new user, all this stuff just for convenience because it's the same basic page. So on that page, uh, the way we implemented it, usually we store stuff in session, which is on the server. Now, we don't like to use session because session is, you know, prevents you from scaling to multiple web servers because unless you have a good session implementation, you know, it's tied to that particular web server's memory, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the very few places well, we you, do use a, session. A good load, load balancer will, um, a good load balancer will keep people going back to the same server that they previously went to. So that, that's not, that's not really an issue. Right. But we still, we don't want to like make, we don't really need session that much, but mm-hmm. there's a handful of situations where we really need it. And uh, authentication is one of them because you have information that you want to retain state on and you're redirecting through Google, Google and Yahoo and things like that. So we put stuff in, in session before we do that. Well, when we sat down to write this interstitial page, we thought, okay, we won't use session. We'll actually send down to the client in encrypted form the, the data that we're transferring back and forth. And then we won't need session. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, the guy that we have looking at this, his name is Daniel. He's unbelievably good. Figured out a way, and I still honestly don't fully understand what he did, but he I could log in as anybody in the system. Because I think it was a padding issue. Let me look at his email. Because this was amazing. I, I, we could not figure out how he was doing this, but he was logging in as me. He was logging in as anyone he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, It was really quite amazing. So one thing we learned there is like, don't send data down to the client unless you absolutely positively have to. <laughs> yeah. Because the odds of somebody really smart figuring it out okay. are very high. So, so actually, I have the text. Let me, me read you the text. This is really amazing. The trick was realizing that even though I couldn't break the encryption, I could see that it was doing eight byte blocks. Mm-hmm. And given a, a given eight bytes starting on a boundary will always map to the same thing. So if I could put the target open ID on a boundary... I could let Stack Overflow do its encryption, then chop off the part that was extraneous, and then submit the form. Okay. I mean, this didn't even... We had no idea that this was, this was even possible. For us, it was like, okay, we're calling an encryption function. We had a hash, right? Yeah. It, it should have been secure, but it wasn't. So don't send stuff down to the client. It's kind of what we've learned. And also, like... When well, you, you don't have... Okay, so in a particular... <laughs> I just want to get back to this particular design issue because the people in our audience are trying to decide whether this is one of those cases where they're where I, I'm right and you're just not listening to me or <laughs> I'm wrong and you're not listening okay. to me because it depends because if I'm right and you're not listening to me, they get to take a drink. Yes. And now you get to take a drink for the take a drink, take a drink. Um, all right. So you've got them logged on to server fault using their Google account, and you want to find out if maybe they have Stack Overflow credentials so that you can copy their stuff over because this is the first time and you've got a little flag in the database under their user ID that says, new person, need to see if they want to copy over their server server uh, Stack Overflow uh, credentials. So you said something in the database. You set a magical number. You pick a random number. You put it in the database. You never send this down to the client. And then you re- redirect to 
um, Stack Overflow saying, hey, yo, do you, um, do you know anything about this person? And that's in the database. And, right, so you got a magical number, and the, let's say the magic n- random number that you got is 17, right, because you got a really good random number generator. And so you go to Stack Overflow and you say, hey, yo, 17, Stack Overflow has access to the same database. So it goes in there and it looks, and it's like, oh, I know all about user 17. That's the same as, uh, you know, the, the guy that you're calling user 46. And uh, so then it sends a redirect back, or even it just fills in that row. It just redirects back doing nothing and just fills in that row. Hey, wait, why isn't this all done? Why do you have to redirect? Why isn't this all done through the database? Well, oh, I know. You need to pick up the cookie. You need to scoop up the guy's cookie that he's got on Stack Overflow. So you redirect to Stack Overflow, and then you get then Stack Overflow gets the guy's cookie and says, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Seventeen is the same as that guy," and it can make the connection in the database and then redirect back. But nothing's going to the client. It's all happening in the database. The only reason you're doing a redirect is to cause the guy's browser to send his Stack Overflow cookie to Stack Overflow in a URL request that also includes some identifying information from server fault so that Stack Overflow can then, you know, join these together in the database. Well, I I hear what you're saying. And basically we're forcing a redirect. I'm just leery at this point of having our login. I mean, as an optional thing that the user does, Mm -hmm. I'm cool with it. As As a core part of our login process, Based on the vulnerabilities we've had and and the things that I've seen. Okay, take really... a drink. Take a drink. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we should well, move on. I think we're saying the same thing, yeah. but I, I just don't want to make that part of the automatic. actual login process. Look, if it's not secure, then it shouldn't be available as a manual option either. Yeah, but it's easier for us to troubleshoot if it's if it's something that users do occasionally versus a core part of our login process. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think you're, I think it's 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 easy to make this thing work. I mean, this is what all these public sites do. What Microsoft, every single page you go to, that's why it takes so long to bring up a friggin' MSDN article. Is it's redirecting you through Live and MSN. It's just redirecting you through Passport.com, scooping up all your old cookies to try to figure out if it knows who you are. Well, I'm definitely for it. I mean, the intent is for us to tie user accounts together so you yeah. don't have to repeat all your information. So the, the goal is definitely there. As far as the implementation, I mean, whatever whatever we can get to work, I'm just a little gun-shy at the moment on login changes. Okay. You sold me. That's, Should we take a listener question? Yes, let's do that. Uh, which one do you want? You got Paul and Tom. We'll, uh, we'll play them both. Let's start with Paul. Hi, my yeah. name's Paul Bins. My question is, I've seen a few articles relating to companies doing background checks on social networking sites, MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, and the like. I was curious to your opinions on should developers be concerned of old code, perhaps that written while the programmer was still in the early stages of learning on places like public SVN sites, Google Code, Stack Overflow, for instance. Do you know? How long till we see companies turning down applications based on really bad code posted onto a website? Jeff, um, you go first. I, it's hard for me to process this question because I don't think that doing stuff in public is ever really wrong. I think most programmers are so shy they are. about posting stuff that right. they are absolutely not going to post stuff that they're not like, this is kick-ass. Yeah. You know? I, I have a hard time seeing if well, you have a post, so I mean, bad. You just com- contribute to some open source project and your name gets associated with that and then you're afraid that this is what comes up in Google and your employer is going to find it all. You know, your potential employers are going to be like, are you friggin' kidding? I can't hire this guy. Look at this code. I, I think this is a really rare scenario. I think we're yeah. focusing on the rare scenario. Sure. What I don't, I don't like about what this question implies is that 
you should sort of, again, walk on eggshells. Be afraid of doing stuff online because people are going to track you down and see what you did is wrong. And I feel like most programmers are are just so shy about putting anything online that's not the best thing they've ever done, mm-hmm. that this is just not a real problem. And, well, I, and I worry that people are going to hear this and say, ooh, maybe I shouldn't do something in public. And I think that's going to hurt you much more, being shy about put, doing stuff on a public project or posting a, a blog entry with code. That's going to hurt your career much more long-term than saying, you know what, I'm not going to put anything online, I'm going to be invisible online. The, the trouble be, is you're not really invisible online. You, if you're not putting anything online, you're just not controlling what's showing up for you online. Yes, thank you. That's that's, so that's, the, that's the real problem. Let me, uh, to, to be honest, um, I, I have to say to this person that there are at least two cases where I didn't hire a person because I did a Google search and found things that I thought would conflict with that person doing a good job. Really? Yeah. But was I, it code though? No, it wasn't code. But if it if it and if it had been, I think I'm smart enough to know that. Like, look, what's the age of this code? Do you look at when they posted yeah. it and stuff like that. And I look at their resume and I'm like, look, you posted this four years ago when you just got out of college. I, I'm I'm sure you're probably better now. And well, we know without to, revealing yeah. the people's information, what class of information were you looking at that gave you that decision? The, the first was thing, which was a, was a blog in which a person who was a potential employer here had basically told the story of their life that I thought was inconsistent with their being a reliable employee. Let's put it that way. And, Just random craziness. Um, yeah. No, 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 not random craziness, but craziness that I don't want to be specific about because it, sure. I don't want no, to identify it. I understand. It. Actually, you know, I've said the same thing. If somebody doesn't have like their personal life under control, like if just crazy things constantly happen to this person. Well, it's okay for their personal life, but it was, it, the, but they were actually blogging about how over. it was affecting their work life. Like they were basically, but, they, they were basically telling stories about why they couldn't go into work because of this and they couldn't go into work because of that. They couldn't go into work because of that other thing. And, and, uh, it all added up to, we need somebody that will come into work. <laughs> and uh, so that was the uh, – uh, that that was one case. The other case was a person um, where uh, – I, I don't know how to put this um, without identifying – yeah, I, I just won't. But it was a person where the top thing that came up was a, a legal scuffle that they got into that made me suspect that they were not necessarily the most ethical or honest person in the world. Ooh, that's just a, just a suspicion, but the, the the kind of things that were coming up is and, – and this person should have once tried typing their name into Google. They would know that the front page of results on Google were all about this particular scuffle. And the interesting thing is if your goal is to silence – is to prevent this from being a problem by not ever posting anything on the web, you're getting the worst problem, which is that you don't actually control what's on the web. Just try – just go search for, for, for my name, for example, and I guess I'm a personality on the web. I haven't done this – in years, but search for my name on Google, and you know, there's a lot of stuff there that I control. And then there's something you control where it says, "Is Joel Spolsky jumped the shark?" And then there's a question mark, and that's the question mark that means <laughs> that the answer is no. It's the yes. journalist question mark. <laughs> I'm going to change that to an exclamation point. Actually, <laughs> essentially, uh, uh, except for uh, <laughs> except for Jeff Atwood's little obnoxious post, there's nothing <laughs> on on the uh, on Google that that I. That, I, that I'm all that worried about. And you'd have to go pages and pages and pages down to start to actually find um, things that I don't, you know, in some way have some kind of control over because even even what, what you wrote about me was, was writing about a blog post that I put up. So it, to some yeah. extent, this is kind of the world that I'm creating. There's nothing in here that the SEC has created about me. There's nothing in here that, you know, a group of crazy mujahideen has put in here about me. I mean, it's yes. just, it's what I put up there. And sometimes you look for somebody and you find, you know, you find a mention of some high school athletic achievement, right? Because the last time they were on the internet 
was when they were in 11th grade and they, you know, scored the winning touchdown and the, the captain of the East Albuquerque High School football team. No, that's that's a great point. I mean, if if you're not out there controlling the messaging, yeah, by putting stuff online, then you're letting other people tell your story. And not and even intentionally, right? Not it's good. not it's just like what what sometimes it's just, you know, a random news clipping from a million years ago that doesn't in any way reflect who you are or what you think about yourself. At the very least, get a friggin' LinkedIn page and make a public po- make a public profile that at the very least is your resume, you know? And that'll come up first. It just will very quickly, you know? It, it'll it'll dominate some of those old high school athletic articles. Well, that was an excellent question. Um, uh, I enjoyed that one. Yeah. And we really have a philosophy, actually, at Stack Overflow of uh, your Stack Overflow identity, right? We're, we're, we're kind of, hey, uh, are we ever going to do that thing where um, we made the little feature with a badge that you can put on your blog? It's really highly ranked. We were just looking at that last night. That should only um, take like a, a minute to do. And then we get uh, millions of inbound links and our page rank goes through the roof. That's true. That is the secret goal of all these badge programs, <laughs> FYI. Yeah. Anyone who's naive about this, I want to be clear that it's basically just a giant backlink scheme for the site. <laughs> uh, so just so you know, the idea would be that you've got that little identity, um, which has your little picture and your name and how many badges you have and your Carmon Stack Overflow. And what we would do is provide a little uh, tiny HTML page that anybody could use and put on their blog that uh, in an iframe that would be, or maybe a, a it may be a, uh, a, p- a ping or like an image file, but I think an iframe is probably just as good. Yeah. And uh, you, it just, you just let you put a little thing over there in the sidebar of your blog or on your resume or whatever that shows your current Stack Overflow score and all your badges. And, of course, it would have a little tiny Stack Overflow logo that would link back to Stack Overflow. But that's just a coincidence, just a happy coincidence. Um, oh, and, and speaking of which, uh, we actually had on Twitter – uh, a Stack Overflow user tell me that somebody actually offered him a job referencing his Stack Overflow score. <laughs> yeah, wait, that that's happened a couple of times, hasn't it? Uh, I've, I've that's great, of, but yeah, this is this is at least the the, the second or third time that that we found out about this. I'm sure it happened. This all is the time. first one that it was so literal that it was like, okay, this is your Stack Overflow score. We think you're really good. Yeah. here's a job offer. It was very very literal. A B. Yeah, people have asked about it, but this is the first time somebody said, "Based on your score, we're offering you a job." That's awesome, and that's something we want to, yeah, we want to encourage and make and make easier. Yes, well, I, I think the the time that you're putting in the Stack Overflow doesn't just build us up and build the site up; it builds you up. I mean, mm-hmm. that is so important. That's that's really from day one. I've said this is about showing how awesome you guys are, the people contributing to the site, how much you know, and to the extent that people get recognized for that. Um, that's awesome. I mean, that's absolutely one of the goals. So it's exciting. And we actually, we're working on some features to make that even more explicit, yep. you know, that, that are coming. Right. So, oh. uh, yeah, building your identity on the website, you really, I mean, you could control it to a great degree just by posting a few blog posts, um, putting up a public, publicly visible resume, linking to Stack Overflow, uh, linking to your <laughs> external page on Stack Overflow, linking to LinkedIn. Blogging about Stack Overflow. Blog about, you know, just Twitter about <laughs> Stack Overflow and... And it's all good. That's great. Hey, clarification. Okay, pu- public so speeches, on, speeches in public about Stack Overflow are very good, very useful, very helpful. If you want to take out full-page ads in the Wall Street Journal about Stack Overflow. Hey, I don't know. We said this. We've announced this in about a million places, but not on the podcast, which is that uh, there is – if you go to Google Video, um, there's a speech that I gave at Google about Stack Overflow. So if you yeah. just can't get enough, uh, <laughs> let's see, YouTube <laughs> – it's like a sickness. It's, you can't get enough. <laughs> oh. uh, and I, let's try searching for Spolsky Google Stack Overflow. Uh, 
It's yeah. on the blog as well. Yeah. Search for Spolsky Google Stack Overflow and we'll link to it from the show notes and you can watch. It's about an hour presentation that I gave over there and, uh, you can, you can see what, what question Guido von Rossum asked. Me. Yes, and John Skeet also asked a question. He did. I didn't. I didn't notice that it was him at the time. Otherwise, I would have. Well, been they like, oh misprinted. They totally butchered his name, which was depressing. Oh, but, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's too bad. That's probably. Oh, why I didn't uh, catch it. clarification. Uh, the name Stack Overflow Overflow that came up on uh, the the podcast with with Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was actually not John Skeet recommended it, but I had a very like strongly worded email from Benjamin Auten A U T I N. Saying that he actually created this and he had citations and everything. So I just want to be going record saying Benjamin is in, as far as we know, the person who came up with Stack Overflow Overflow. So we don't want to make sure that credit is uh, where credit is. Got it. But it's just a Lorem Ipsum site. It just has a (laughs) bunch of Greek letters. Greek, uh, Greeking, Greeking. Why is it called Greeking when it's Latin? I, I have no idea. Let's do the other question. Yeah, we have another question from a listener called, uh, Hi, Joel and Jeff. This is Tom from Manhattan. I believe the phrase to describe me is, First time, long time. My question is, what steps, if any, you took to protect the intellectual property built into Stack Overflow? I'm working on a startup of my own. I don't know how to protect myself from someone producing an exact copy of my site, or, in general, whether it's even worth worrying about at all. Suppose the reason I put it change was more on the ball. What would have stopped them from copying the best parts of Stack Overflow before you guys got a critical mass of users? Too late. Um, We already got the critical mass. Ha! I think a lot of the concern about uh-huh. copying is sort of misplaced. Um, mm-hmm. I think you want to, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm more of the, the mind that, first of all, create, if you've created something worth copying at all, yeah. it's already kind of rare. So 90% of the time when you create something, nobody cares. It's not going to get copied. So it's, it's all academic. It doesn't really matter how many protections you have in place because nobody cares. Yep. So at the point in which people care enough to make a copy of what you're doing, first of all, it, it's a huge compliment. It means you've done something good that that's worth copying. And I think the way to stay ahead in the whole, you know, are people going to copy me race is, first of all, it's, it's a weird negative mentality. I don't, I don't like fear-based development. I like to develop things because I think the world needs them or I think they're cool or I think they would be interesting and help people and not because, you know, I'm afraid that other people are going to copy what I'm doing. Mm. Um, and I think you want to continually evolve. I mean, if you look at, like even the iPod, for example, is you know how many people have tried to clone the iPod now? Yeah, I mean, by the time they come up with their clone, they're they're like a couple of generations behind Apple anyway. That's that's exactly my point. Exactly mm-hmm. my point. A living software project is continually changing and is very very hard to copy for that reason. Mm-hmm. At the point which you're locked in for a year and your site hasn't changed for a year, then you should start to worry that people are going to just copy you lock, stock, and barrel. But as long as you're continuing to evolve. Um, you're just going to continue to get better, and it's going to be really hard for people to copy you. And, and certainly that's the intention on Stack Overflow is we're a living software project. We're going to continue to add features, refine our site, make it better, make it cooler. One way to uh, – yeah. Mm-hmm. One that's way the, to evolve. That's my theory. If you're in this particular niche, if your product happens to be the kind of product that benefits from having a larger number of users, and that's uh, you know, there's a certain class of uh, website software business that the more people it has, the better it gets. And it's called a network effect, right? Because the bigger the network, the number of possible connections in the network is, is, you know, order of n squared. And so the more, the more people you have, the better it gets. So think of like auction sites, eBay just totally won the auction thing because there were more people looking at auctions and there were more people selling things. And so it was just a more competitive market. And, uh, similarly, Twitter has pretty much, you know, owned the, space of whatever you call that thing 
the twitting, the twitting, tweeting, twittering space because there's there's so many people on there and you could go make a new one and it could have 10 times as much functionality but if there's nobody there it doesn't matter and um and uh so i actually so that's the network effects thing it's not even necessarily the case that you have to keep ahead in terms of what features you have it may be just enough that you capture that that initial uh, critical mass uh, of 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 people um so that you you always are the better place you know, if you have a very, very rare question about programming, you're going to want to ask it on Stack Overflow because Stack Overflow has 3 million unique visitors a month. And there's just a lot more people that are going to look at it on Stack Overflow than on uh, other sites or anybody else that may come up and try to compete with us. And, and in fact, I have like a whole theory about this. And the theory says that uh, if, you start a, if you start a business and um, you're worried about people copying it, um, stop, stop worrying about that because what you'll actually find is that if you're doing something that's really going to work, that when you try to tell people to it, they won't quite get it. You'll tell them, I'm building this thing and it's going to do blah, blah, blah. And there are two possibilities at this point. Either it already exists because it's kind of obvious that you could do a thing like this, for example, bug tracking software. Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of sites that have that. There's a bunch of companies that make that. Or it sounds in some way like it shouldn't work and there's something that makes the people hearing that idea make them not think it's going to work and not really want to do it and those are the super exciting sites the super exciting sites are the ones where no matter how many people you tell about it they're not quite getting why it should work and and for example people would tell me about ebay for months before i finally tried it and i would just say i don't get it you just you just send money to some person that you found on the internet like why wouldn't everybody pretend to have laptops for sale and just collect all the checks and disappear and so I really fundamentally thought that eBay wouldn't work. And indeed, while eBay was growing and gaining that critical mass and becoming this fantastically successful uh, auction site, uh, which is now full of scammers, but whatever, um, but in the days that it was building that, crit that huge critical mass, I was sitting there saying, yeah, it couldn't possibly work. And if I had been interested in this marketplace, by the time I would have gotten in there, it would have been too late. They would have already had critical mass. And... Um, you know, and uh, so I'm I'm actually looking at Stack Overflow, and one thing I'm noticing is that the site that uh, we consider to be one of our main competitors, uh, which is a four-pay site that pretends not to be a four-pay site and kind of cloaks itself and stuff, and we're going to call it the hyphen site from now on because they have a hyphen in their URL. But um, they still haven't really changed anything about the way they do business, and we've been out now for six months, and we've been taking away traffic from them at a fantastic rate, or actually. We're not really sure if we're taking away traffic from them, but we're certainly growing at a fantastic. We're taking away market share from them at a fantastic rate, and they must be aware that we exist. And they haven't changed anything about the way they do business. And someday, when somebody writes the history of Stack Overflow for Wikipedia, they're going to say, you know, it took that hyphen site two years and four months to even respond to Stack Overflow and to do something to try to you know, respond to the new competitive challenge because somehow people are just used to their way of doing business and they're just kind of locked into it. And if you've got something that's genuinely new, they're not going to notice it and change the way that they do things for, for years. Yeah. I, I so. think that's kind of what I was saying, which is that it's, it's, it's not about where you are. It's sort of like the velocity of where you're going mm -hmm. and people can see that. Like when I respond to people via email, with regards to serverfault and Stack Overflow, they're always really impressed. Like when I'm around, granted I don't do this while I'm sleeping, but how fast we turn things around. Like if there's a bug on the site, yeah. we fix it like as soon as we can. Right. You know, we're turning things around really, really quickly, 
And, you know, we try to get to things on our user voice list, you know, in, in, in the order that they're listed as rapidly as we can. Um, and, and people really respond to that and they can, they can tell when you're stagnating. And I think that turns people away when they see that you're not changing and you're not evolving, Mm -hmm. then they kind of don't want to be a part of that. Because they see it's not. I think the, the the rapid response basically makes up for any immaturity you may have because you have a new product, right? Like like because it's new, people will look at it and they're like, "Well, why can't I?" I don't know. They've got something that they want it to be able to do. Although I really kind of feel like Stack Overflow is pretty close to feature complete, but um, it, it it's definitely getting there. Yeah. I mean, we were looking at the list of user voice stuff last night, and, and there's some nice to haves on there, but there's nothing really urgent, with the possible exception of the badge thing. Right. Right. And a few, one or two other things, but yeah, we're, it's looking really stable. That's one reason we felt comfortable bifurcating into two sites was that we felt like we had gotten the code to a state where we were comfortable having two sites running on this code right, base now. Code. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then hopefully we'll see what happens with the hosting um, as far as how many changes have to happen to the code there. Right. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, basically entrepreneurs are constantly worried about their intellectual property and somebody's going to see their brilliant idea and copy it. And the bottom line is, if the, the trouble they're having is not that nobody ever exposed this idea to them. The reason they're not copying it is because when they look at this idea, they don't get it. And so they're not going to copy it because they don't get it. And you have to prove to them that it's going to work. And those are the really good businesses, right? It, they, they either already have the idea like, oh, you're opening an ice cream store? That's great. Gosh, I never thought of an ice cream store. And so there, there there appears to be almost no intellectual property whatsoever. You have to tell people, it's an ice cream store where we pay you to eat the ice cream. And that's going to be a successful business because anybody would hear that business idea and say, well, that's stupid. How do you make money? And they would immediately yeah. discard it and they would not get into that business. And you've got to be out there paying people to take ice cream cones for a year and a half before they start to notice that you're making good money off of that. And hopefully if you have network effects, by that time, you've taken over the world. So go ahead, Tom, take over the world from Manhattan. I'm all for it. And I think you also described this, I think, a little bit better, is the idea has to sound crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has to sound a little bit crazy. Not that people don't get it, or they do get it, and they're like, "What? why would you do that? You know, that's just... (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) There has to be certain incredulousness that people have upon hearing your ideas. Like, there's already tons of things that do that. That doesn't make any sense. And the one with Uh, Stack Overflow, I would tell to people, usually not programmers, and they would say, why would anybody answer your questions? Are you going to pay them a little bit? <laughs> like, so wait, you're going to hire a bunch of people in India to answer these technical questions, these programming questions for people? Like, no, no, you don't get it. They're going to do it for free. And they're going to be like, what? <laughs> that's so funny because as a programmer, that's like the one thing that causes people to answer your question. You know, it's, right. it's the whole. Right. Yeah. If you've ever met a programmer, you'll understand why. The minute you put a technical question out there, it's like they, they love to answer questions. Uh, hey, we're Just running out of time. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any Stack Overflow uh, or, or? Hey, let's take a server fault question. Do you have any server fault questions you wanna? Well, we're kind of at the end, and what I was gonna tell people is just all my, all. I had a pent like a massive desire to post questions on server fault, and I have done that now, and I've gotten some really satisfying responses mm-hmm. to the sysadmin slash IT questions that I had welling up inside me. Like I asked a question about remember the whole raid travails that I've been through. Sure. I finally figured that out, by the way, and I'm not going to give you the answer. You'll have to go to server fault and see what I posted there. What do I search for? Raid Atwood. No. No, you can just go to my account. Just go to Stack Overflow users slash one and then look at my questions that I've asked. So every question that I've asked is my favorite this week on server fault. (laughs) 
And it's really true. Let's, I've had these let questions. Me just pick, like, let me pick one. How much electricity is required to power 20 average computers on a LAN? Well, that, that was an answer. That's not a question. Oh, wait. Questions. You, got two, you only have two questions on here. I know, but I love both of them. Okay. Windows Server unable to synchronize NTP time reliably. That was just an annoyance, but that's a good one. Uh, look at that. Reg D word value. You change some registry value, and then it just kind of works. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. So if you put in an NTP time source, you'll get these random errors when it can't synchronize time. Because sure, it's I mean, that even happens on regular Windows. It happens on my desktop all the time. Yeah, and what you do is you go in and you change, literally you change a registry value from reliable to unreliable, and then you don't get these annoying messages that, you know, couldn't sync time. Wow. Yeah, I, weird. I, you know what? I think, I, I feel like NTP, NTP has some sort of weird issues. The first is that whatever it is about the protocol, uh, it doesn't work through a firewall unless the firewall is open to NTP because it's not an outbound-only protocol. It actually requires inbound something. So that's the first problem, which is that if your firewall, a lot of people can never get NTP to work because of, of uh, you know, a typical default firewall would just block it unless it was doing something to pass it through um, to allow it to pass. So that's a, that's one thing. Um, the other thing I think is that a lot of NTP servers were just massively overloaded because, you know, there would be like like the Microsoft ones and the and the Apple ones that billions of people are hitting all the time. Yes. So they might take a really long time to respond or they might screw up in some way. But uh, that somebody turns mentioned out there's, not to be the reason. There's uspool.ntp.org. So What's there's that? like a list of NTP servers. So if you want to pick an NTP server that's more off the beaten trail, mm-hmm. um, maybe look at that list. us.pool.ntp.org? Yeah. What does pool mean? Pool of NTP servers. Like a swimming pool. Yeah, like a pool. This you know, just redirects me. This is redirecting me to a website called gordo.fufus.net, and it's got a picture of a Mexican boxer. Are you lying? I'm not. Try it. Type it. us.pool.ntp.org. No. What? It does not. You got me. No, what the hell? Pool.ntp.org projects is a big virtual cluster of time servers. It's redirecting me to gordo.fufus.net. What the hell is gordo.fufus.net? Am I I under attack? Is this bizarro? (laughs) Everything. I'm talking to you. No, seriously. Did well, I? Ta- we'll, have to fig- we'll have to figure that out next podcast. This podcast is just going I, straight down the drain. If it you is. have if you have a question for us for the Stack Overflow podcast, please um, record it in the form of an MP3 or a WAV file. Those are the or our Ogvorbis. I can take any three of those formats and email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. Please include your name and uh, and uh, how to how to spell your name so that when we write it in the show notes, we'll spell it right. And uh, you can also call if using this uh, ancient device called a telephone, which uses a dial where you uh, put your finger in different holes and rotate it based on the number. And you can call six four six. 826-3879. That's the podcast hotline and record a 60 to 90 second message for us or a question for us for the next show. And that'll give us something to talk about. There's also a transcript page, a transcript wiki, which allows people from all over the world. If there's something on this podcast that you heard that you like and you want to write it down so that people can find it in Google and stuff like that, um, go to the transcript wiki and that's linked to from the show notes, which are always at blog.stackoverflow.com. It's also helpful to the hearing impaired who are able to read the show notes, but not able to listen to the podcast. Otherwise, thank you very much and we'll see you next week see you next week you know you know i we just did a whole bunch of uh i probably should have mentioned this on the podcast jeff dalgas occasionally just randomly does stuff that's kind of cool and he set up this subversion uh stats package that mm-hmm. shows like who wrote all the code and has just it's like graph porn you mm-hmm. know how many who wrote the most lines of code in this oh, yeah, you yeah. know it's What's that thing unbelievable called? 
Yeah, we had that. Uh, That's fine. SVN stats or whatever the hell it's called. It's not it turns hard out I actually, I actually have written the most code in the project. No kidding. Which surprised me. Yeah, that surprised me too. Well, uh, well, because Jared did a shitload of work, particularly early on. He was basically yeah. writing all the code. Um, that did surprise me, actually. I, I, I don't know. It might be a trick of how it's measuring it. It might be measuring just changes. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.